Well, good morning. And I know Pastor Lance will be watching this, so thank you for the opportunity to open the Word with you. Um, Before we get to the Word and pray, I just want to tell a little bit about the Ventura County Rescue Mission. We provide over 700 meals a day to the poor. If you look through the Scriptures, you'll see over 200 references that God has is to care for the poor. And part of that is that he says, if you give to the poor, you're lending to me because they can't repay and I'll repay you. So the idea is we encourage all to come and be a part of that as they do. God blesses them for their giving. But God loves a cheerful, there you go, giver. So we enjoy that. The other thing we do is a 10-month drug and alcohol recovery program where men out of prison or living on the streets, or wherever they are, they come into the program for 10 months. But the goal isn't drug and alcohol recovery. The goal is to become a disciple of Christ. And we, some people term our ministry uh, discipleship on steroids because they are in a very structured environment. They learn what I would call a year of Bible school knowledge. And by the time they graduate, they really understand what justification is, sanctification, what their walk is, and other things that help them lead a productive life. In the last three years, we have 157 men and women who have graduated from the program, that are still clean and sober, that are living for Christ, that are in churches, that are employed and housed, that were once on the street. And that's all because of the power of Christ. Nothing to do. We're just the conduit to get the power of Christ to them. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. It is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. So that's just a um, little tidbit of the Ventura County Rescue Mission. But if you have your Bibles, I understand uh, you have the inspired translation, the English Standard Version. (laughs) If you'll turn with me to Ephesians chapter 3, we're going to be looking at something that Paul asked for strength to comprehend. Think about that. He's asking us for strength to comprehend this, which is amazing. Ephesians chapter 3, we're going to start at verse 14. Now, what makes this interesting when Paul says this, for, the, for this reason I bow my knees, is all the theology he has said in chapters 1 and 2. But the Jews stood to pray. This has a sense of such humility, understanding what Christ has done for him. He bows his knees. And it says this, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through the Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may, here it is, may have the strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth, which is width, what is the length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with the fullness of God. This is theology. Now Paul goes into doxology. He starts to praise God by saying, verse 20, now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than we can ask or think according to the power at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Jesus Christ or Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. So he goes from theology to doxology. 
But join me in a, in a prayer asking God to give us understanding as we open up this passage of Scripture. Our Father and our God, we need the illumination of the Holy Spirit to understand the depth, the height, the width, and the length of the love of Christ for us. I pray that you'll give us ears to hear and eyes to see, and may we walk differently understanding this. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. What we've just heard is the pinnacle of Christian truth. It really is. To have our understanding in this area begins to dissipate our anxiety. It helps calms our fears and our doubts. Far too many Christians are content to spend their life in the lowlands, the God-forsaken plain of this world, and not experience the incredible joy of understanding the depth of the love of God. This reason the Apostle John writes... Perfect love casts out fear. Now, it isn't perfect love that we have for God because we'll never attain that in this life. It's understanding God's perfect love towards us. And when we understand that, again, fear and doubts begin to dissipate us. And we understand the other aspects of Christianity much more clear when we understand how much he loves us. John wrote it this way, we love only because he first loved us. So come with me to a higher plane this morning. Come with me to a place that will increase your faith, that will mend a broken heart, that will give you a joy and contentment that the world knows nothing about. But this topic is difficult to expound on. It's like dissecting a fragrance. You can't dissect a fragrance. All you can do is experience it. So this too is why we ask the Holy Spirit to give us illumination because Paul says in verse 19 that this passes or surpasses knowledge. We don't have the ability without the Spirit's help to comprehend the depth of the love of God for us. Again, Paul continues and says, once you begin to understand this, he says at the end of this verse, you'll be filled with the fullness of God. That's what it means to be blessed is to have that sense of contentment, that sense of peace, that God loves you so thoroughly that your whole future and everything that you are concerned about, he will take care of because you're his son or daughter. So let's begin by noting two general principles. The first is the highest attainment in in Christianity is to become like Christ. Do you agree with that? We are to be molded into the image of Christ. That's why Peter says, don't think it's strange when fiery temptation trials take you because you're going to share in the sufferings of Christ that you may share in his glory. So the idea here is that we are to be like Christ and we will go through pain and suffering, but we'll only be able to go through it with the joy that we need, understanding that it is God loves us perfectly. So we need to, as John, uh, as Jesus said in the Gospel of John, in chapter 17, in this high priestly prayer, here's what he said, I will make known the love to the apostles and to us. I will make known the love which you have loved me, Father. If we could understand how much God loves his son, and that same love is now transferred to you, we begin to grasp the depth of of the love of God. Paul writes that we might comprehend it. And it's true that all Christians have a basic understanding. Every single Christian has an understanding of God's love or you wouldn't be saved. But it's like climbing a mountain. 
The higher you go and the more you get through the fog, you'll start to see with clarity more and more the depth of the love of God. It's not a matter of understanding. It's a matter of the degrees of understanding that begins to enlighten you. So it's like climbing a mountain. The in pursuit of knowledge is to understand, to comprehend the love that God has for us. This should be our goal when we're studying the scriptures. We should always look towards the person of Christ and how much he loves us when we study. It has, it has been really well documented too that a Christian cannot begin to understand this unless he has the verses in his thinking. Then the Holy Spirit takes it and illuminates it and you begin to grow in more and more. That's why it's like a mountain. It's work. It's climbing this and understanding. God applies it to us. But it, we can't make doctrine the goal. One of the things that Luther and some of the Puritans thought was dangerous was to test young people in their knowledge of doctrine because they would study to pass the test but forget the person who wrote the doctrine and forget the fact that they're studying to understand Christ and to be like him and to understand his love. So we have to make sure that when we're studying and we're reading, we're doing it with the purpose that I might know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering being conformed to his death, that we might have that always inside us when we're studying. The second principle is this knowledge is available to all believers, but only believers. It's the secret is enjoyed by the Lord's people only. It's the hidden manna that Christians get to enjoy. It's the mystery of the gospel. Here's the mystery that God, the second person of the Trinity, left heaven, was born of a virgin, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead and buried. On the third day he rose again. Why? Because he loved you and he loves me. It begins to open up, so many, like I said, so many passages. He wanted to redeem us from the curse. When Paul was writing this to the church at Ephesus, it's not like what you think of a church today. They might have met in a, a larger home or somewhere where they could meet, but it was made up of primarily slaves. In that time, a slave was considered lower than dirt, just property. And what Paul is saying to you slaves, do you understand what I'm trying to say? That you are so loved by God that he sent his son to redeem you, to buy you back so you would be his. You are so loved by God. He will orchestrate everything in your life to give you a peace and contentment and the fullness to people who the world didn't think were worthy of even to acknowledge. That's what we find sometimes with the homeless that come in. When they come in, they stink of urine. Some have been sleeping in their clothes for days. Some of them have been mistreated out on the street. And when they come in, they look down. So one of the reasons we put on the ground in front of them is I was a stranger and you took me in. They don't look up because they don't feel good about themselves. They look down. But when they see this and then when they finally look up and they see welcoming faces like yours when you serve the homeless when you're there they all of a sudden begin to realize the dignity they have isn't because they failed, it's because they're created in the image of God. No matter how they look, no matter how they smell, they have the dignity of being in the Imago Dei, the image of God, because God says they're dignified. 
and we should treat them as such. That's why it says, love your neighbor as what? Yourself. So that's the second principle. Jesus said this in Matthew 11, 25. I thank thee, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you hid this from the so-called wise and intelligent, and you revealed it unto babes. You gave it to the people whom the world doesn't think is worthy of this knowledge. The Pharisees studied the scriptures, but they missed the point. Jesus said, you study the scriptures, and the scriptures point to me, but you're not willing to come to me. So that's one of the dangers, like I said, of studying the scriptures and missing Christ. It's unfortunate, though, that some Christians are bored with this topic. Some believe they've heard everything they need to hear about the love of God and shut down. But I don't understand this. To me, I've been a Christian 48 years. When I was 17, I became a Christian. And it's the most exciting topic. Because why in the world would God love me? And to hear it again and again is, is never enough. So let's turn our backs on the ordinary. Let's scale the height of this very high mountain. Soon you begin to experience an exhilaration as you understand the depth of the love of God and conscious of increased faith and inner strength. The Bible says the joy of the Lord is our strength. The Bible says for the joy set before him, Jesus endured the cross. That joy comes from understanding the depth of the love of God. So let's examine what is the width, the length, the depth, and the height of God's love towards us. First is the width. How deep is this? That's, or how wide is this thing? In Revelation 5.9 it says this, By your blood you ransomed a people of God from every tribe, from every tongue, from every people and nation. Again, Revelation 7.9. A great multitude that no one could count from every tribe and every tongue and every people and every nation stood before the Lamb worshiping. How could that be? There are, there are tribes that have perished before Abraham, let alone understood Christ. How could there be a tribe or people of every tongue, every nation? Well, that's because when a baby dies in infancy or a young child dies and he hasn't reached an age where he, under, he can understand that he's a sinner in need of a Savior, he, goes, he doesn't pass go, he goes directly to heaven. And he's before the throne. That's the only reason that would say that. Or else the Bible would say a great multitude that no one could count. But from every tongue and tribe. So that's the depth that God has saved us. What is the length? Jeremiah 31.3 I have loved you with a everlasting love. And here's an interesting thing. Again in Revelation, all who dwell on the earth will worship the beast. Everyone whose name was not written in the Lamb's book of life before the foundation of the world. And again, 11.17, the dwellers on the earth whose names have not been written before the foundation of the world will marvel to see the beast. Then we read Revelation 20, if anyone's name was not found written in the Lamb's book of life, he was thrown, life, he was thrown in the lake of fire. So when was your name written? Before the foundation of the world. Be in eternity past, God put your name down and he'll love you to eternity future. That is the length of Christ's love for you. And it's immutable. It won't change. It's everlasting. And it's a love that is absolutely unshakable. It's the length of Christ's love. So what's the depth? What would be considered the depth? 
Jesus, second person of the Trinity. He said in John 17, Father, the glory that we shared before the world was, the glory that Jesus had with the Father and Holy Spirit must have been magnificent. And he left that to be born of a virgin, to be under the law, to live a life perfectly before God for us. One of the things that we teach the men at the Ventura County Rescue Mission is it's not enough for Jesus to have died for your sins to get to heaven. For that would get you out of hell, but not get you into heaven. And they go, what do you mean? I go, well, the Bible says you're to be perfect or righteous before Christ. How is it? He goes, well, that'll never happen, right? Who is the only righteous person? And they say Christ. Christ lived 33 years obeying God in every age and stage, not, not for himself. But he did it because he loved God, but he did it for us. So when we believe, the great exchange happens. Our sins go to him on the cross, so the debt of our sin is forgiven. But what comes to us? The righteousness of Christ. It says that Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Paul says anyone who believes is justified. And what justification means, it's a forensic term that a holy judge will declare you a sinner to be righteous in his sight. Now, I don't know about you, but that's good news. We are not only forgiven, but God calls us righteous and it declares us righteous. That's why Paul wrote to the Ephesians, to the saints. When a slave would hear that, that I'm considered a saint, it was mind-boggling. That's why Paul said to have the strength to comprehend this love helps you in every aspect of Christianity. In response um, to his depth of his love, we surrender to him. What is the height of Christ's love towards us? It says in John, 1 John 3, 1 and 2, we know when he, Jesus, appears, we shall be like him because we will see him as he is. One day you will see Christ face to face. One day you'll be like him. And again, when your body will be changed from mortal to immortal if you're alive at the second coming, if he, when he comes, and you will stand before him and see him. Now, what was Jesus like after the resurrection? He could be held, remember? He could be touched. He could eat. And yet, when they locked all the doors and the windows, what happened? He appeared in the midst. He could disguise himself. So when the guys on the road to Emmaus were talking to him. They didn't know who it was until he revealed himself. And then how did he ascend? It says in Acts that he just ascended into heaven 40 days after the resurrection. That's the kind of body that you and I will have. We'll be able to touch, be recognized. We'll be able to um, eat and yet get passed through animate objects and we'll be able to float into heaven. Now, if you're thinking what I used to think as a young kid, this could be wild in heaven, right? I mean, wow. But then it says in 1 Corinthians that 2.9, No eye has seen, no ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, can't imagine it, what God has prepared for those who love him. It's going to be so far beyond our comprehension that when we see him face to face, we're going to wonder why we didn't pray more. We're going to wonder why we didn't trust him more. Why didn't we let go of our finances more? Why did we hold on to when he had so much for us there?
But the reality of heaven is going to be so much greater than we can imagine, which means the reality of hell will be so much worse than we can imagine. That's why we tell people we love to flee the wrath to come and to receive the love of Christ. Here's the danger, though, of really basking in this knowledge that Christ loves us. Here's the danger. We can become a bit casual in the presence of God, knowing how much He loves us. We sometimes let our guard down. I remember walking through and two men were talking at the mission and one said, I'm, I, I want to get to know the man upstairs. And I stopped and I looked at him and I go, I'm sorry, what did you say? And he goes, what? And I go, you want to get to know the man upstairs? He goes, yeah. And I go, you mean the Lord God omnipotent, creator of heaven and earth? And he goes, yeah, that's who I was mean. I go, when we address him, let's give him the dignity he deserves. He gives us the dignity we deserve. Let's look at him. And he got it, what I was trying to say to him, that we don't uh, come in there with a flippant attitude. Why? Because the reason the love of God is so amazing is because God is so holy and so righteous and perfect. And how could He love me? A sinner, born in sin, rebellious, someone who, like Jonathan Edwards says, enjoys sin. How could He love me? That's why when we understand the love of God, we have to not forget the holiness of who we're dealing with. The writer of Hebrews calls God a consuming fire. Why fire? Because fire is, is a perfect demonstration of God's holiness. It's the fear that it, it creates. It's the consuming power. In fact, when God revealed himself to people in the Old Testament, it's called a theophany, which is a visible manifestation of the invisible God. When God appeared on Mount Sinai, how did he come? Fire and smoke. And they were so afraid. They said, don't let them speak to us. Moses, you speak to us, but don't. So it's the idea that our God is holy. Remember when Moses was walking, he was a shepherd and he saw a bush burning. And it was a bush that was on fire yet not consumed. And he turned. I've got to go see this. And he's walking up. As he gets closer, he hears a voice. Stop. Take the sandals off your feet. For the ground you're standing is holy. What did Moses do? He hid his face. Why? Because when you're face to face with the Lord God omnipotent, you become aware of your sin. What happened to Isaiah in the sixth chapter? In the book of Isaiah, it says in the sixth chapter, in the year that King Uzziah died, he entered the temple and he saw a theophany. He saw fire and smoke. Then angels began to sing, seraphim, holy, holy, holy. Some people think that's referring to the Trinity. It's not. It's Hebrew because there's no words to define some words, so you repeat it. And the more it's repeated, the more intense it is. So God isn't just holy. He is holy, holy. He is thrice holy. And what did Isaiah do? He put his hand over his... Woe is me. He pronounced a divine oracle of judgment on himself. That's what woe means. And he says, woe me, I'm undone. I'm a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of people of unclean lips. He became exceedingly fearful in the presence of the Lord God because he recognized who he was. What happened with John on the island of Patmos? When Jesus, the resurrected and glorified Christ, appeared to him, John saw him and he says his face was like the sun in its strength. 
What happened to John? Well, two things. He either died from an adrenaline rush or he fainted and Christ brought him up. You know that that's possible? As a fireman on the Los Angeles City Fire Department during the Northridge earthquake, a woman died from adrenaline. She was so fearful, her heart couldn't take it. I don't know if that happened to John or he just passed out, but what did he experience? Christ in his glorification and he fell at his feet. What did Peter do? He's been fishing all night with his friends. They haven't caught anything. Jesus says, throw it on the left side. They pulled it in. It filled two boats. When Peter realized it was a miracle, what did he say? Depart from me, Lord, for I'm a sinful man. That's the, the, the feeling. That's what happens to us when we see the holiness of God. So how can a God that is so holy love us so thoroughly? And it's only because he says, because I do. There's nothing you've earned. There's, I don't feel sorry for you. It's nothing you've done. I love you because I love you. And if you're not sure of that, look in Deuteronomy 7, when God puts that on the people of Israel. But back to Moses. When Moses was, it wasn't holy because it was ground, the hot ground from the desert sun. It was holy because of the presence of God. It was holy because of the word of God. What he did, what God touched, transcends. That bush that he touched transcends his holiness. And, and, and Moses was beginning to realize, I have just crossed what theologians call a threshold. God told me to stop. If I would have gone further, I would have been consumed. There's a threshold. There's a place that God says, you can't go any further. Do you remember at Mount Sinai? He put it around the mountain. He says, don't let a person touch it or an animal. If they do, I will break out. That's what it means in Hebrew. I will break out against them and destroy them. Don't cross that threshold. Recognize who I am. When the Ark of the Covenant, we, they, no one was told, nobody can touch it. And when the people, the priests carried it, they carried it with wood poles separated. But when it was on a cart one day and the donkey tripped and the Ark was about to fall, a man trying to, with good intention was going to stick out his hand to save the Ark. He put his hand on it. What happened? God broke out and killed him on the spot. That's a threshold you can't cross in the holiness of God. That's why it says, no man can see me and live. And we, get, we understand God through the person and the grace of Christ. But let me apply that to today. When you walked into church, you crossed a threshold. You went from the common to the uncommon where the presence of God is, where his word is preached, where he is worshipped. You went from the secular to the sacred. You went from the profane to the holy. When you come into church, though we we understand he loves us thoroughly, when we come in, we cross the threshold, and all of a sudden we're in the presence of God. And when we're in the presence of God, that's when we should take note of, of what he's trying to tell us through the preaching of Lance, through other preachers. What are you trying to tell me that I might walk closer and be more humble and begin to love you more like you love me? You came in from the common to the uncommon. It's different than going into a movie theater, a civic meeting, because the presence of God is here. Don't be like Jacob in Genesis 28, 16, where Jacob fell asleep and he saw a ladder. 
and the angels ascending and descending. And he said, he goes, this is where God is. Now that ladder, Jesus tells later, is him. He's the one that has descended and will ascend, but he is the pathway, he's the ladder to God. But Jacob didn't know that. You know what Jacob said? Surely the Lord was in this place, but I did not know it. How many people come into church and don't sense the holy presence of God? Because if you did, I believe if I did better, I would listen better. I would want to humble myself before him and learn of him. There's a great illustration of a young teenage girl who went with her parents on vacation to St. Louis. The parents wanted to see the St. Louis Cathedral. If you've ever seen pictures of this, it is magnificent. She could care less. She was in the back seat with her arms folded and her earbuds in. The last thing she wanted to do was to go into a cathedral. But the parent says, if you do this, then we'll do what you want and we'll go do that. And she goes, oh, well, I can give up 20 minutes of my time to please him so I can go do what I want. Here's what happened. She came into the cathedral and she noticed the Gothic architecture, the stained glass, and the, the way she was joking two minutes early and all of a sudden she was quiet. She stopped with her parents and she noticed something up front. And she, and she wanted to go see it, and she took a step, and then she stopped and says, in a whisper, is it okay if I walk in here? And they said, yeah. So she went up and saw it. What did she experience? Where had she gone? She'd gone from the uncommon to the common. Though the building itself is not the presence of God, we know that, but the idea that God was once there, and the preaching of his word had once happened, that it stopped that girl in her tracks and she recognized she was being way too flippant with her understanding of who he was. Changed her life and she became a Christian leader. Is it okay for me to walk in here? This should be our experience every Sunday. To come in recognizing we have the privilege to enter in through the veil of Christ's flesh into the Holy of Holies. To see God, the Father, face to face as it is through the person of Christ. What a privilege. We've gone from the profane to the holy. I hope you'll begin to comprehend with me, asking God for the strength to comprehend what is the width, what is the length, what is the depth and the height that Christ has toward you in love and the respect that God deserves. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, as we humbly sit here, we recognize, I recognize there's been times I've been too flippant in my understanding of who you are. I haven't taken it serious enough that you are thrice holy and I am but uh, dust. Help us to sense your absolute holiness because the goal is to be like Christ and he was perfect in holiness. Help us to be like him. But we can't. We can't have the balance that we need as Christians with the joy if we don't understand the depth of the love you have for us. You have forgiven us of all of our sins. If we confess our sins, you're faithful and righteous to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You've transferred us from the kingdom of Satan to the kingdom of your beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of our sins. We are clean, redeemed, 
forgiven, declared saints because of your love towards us. Now may we honor you and how we view you, what we think of you, and may you give us a desire to pray more, to give more, to love you more, and to love others, especially the poor and the widow and the orphan that is struggling without a father or husband. Be with us now as we contemplate a communion, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.